Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Yeah, we are officially at the halfway point of this six-chapter New Testament book, the book of Ephesians, which was originally a pastoral uh, letter that Paul wrote as a pastor to a church that he was um, involved in in their uh, inception, and he has a great heart for them as a shepherd. And Paul is writing to this church from a prison cell, as we saw there in the first verse. Paul is writing from a jail cell. What was awesome about Paul is Prison wasn't a counterproductive place for Paul. He, was, he seemed to get a lot done in jail. Uh, kudos to Paul for that. Um, and one of those things that came out of Paul's imprisonment is this letter of encouragement, where Paul is uniquely encouraging this church to be rooted in and to live from their positions in Christ. You've heard this about a thousand times now, if you've been with us for the past few months, and still a thousand times wouldn't be enough for the reminder that we need to live in Jesus, not just to be focused on living for Jesus and doing this and that because of Jesus, but but to live from who we are and where we've been positioned through the gospel. There's no greater place to be in the world than in Christ, than to be in him this morning. And so Paul wants us as Christians to really get that and live from that. Now, the technicalities of that, though, have really shifted in this chapter. I want to point this out. Um, the book of Ephesians traditionally has been broken up into two parts, chapters 1 through 3 as one part, and then chapters 4 through 6 as another. And really the reason why those divisions have been made is because the themes of each, as it pertains to life in Christ, are different. Chapters 1 through 3, where we've been for the past, I think, three months or so, is all about what it means to simply be seated in Christ. That's really the idea. Like right now, you're not doing a thing. You're not active. You're not up. You're not moving, earning. You're positioned. You're seated in this room. And Paul, for for chapters one through three, has been talking about what are called indicatives, which are just truths about our lives because of the gospel. Um, You know, we use the expression in our culture, don't just sit there. What? Do something. Well, Paul would write for three chapters, don't do anything. Just sit there and be and receive all that you have in and through the gospel. These are things that are as finished as the cross. Truths about our adoption, truths about our identity, truths about the church. These are things that are just facts. So Paul usually starts this way too. Paul will never give a command or an imperative like do this without first spending time explaining a fact or a theology or an indicative, something that is true. And so that's how uh, Ephesians is working. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about what's true. And then you see chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins with a very important word. He says, I, what? Therefore. And if you've been in church before, you've heard this an annoying amount of times, that anytime the word therefore is in the Bible, you have to ask, what is it? Therefore. That therefore is signifying a shift Paul has been saying, chapters 1 through 3, here is all that's true over your life because of Jesus. Here's what's a fact. Whether you move an inch uh, to the left, to the right, whether you progress or you digress in holiness, it doesn't matter. You are in Christ. This is a fact. Therefore, in light of these facts, now we're going to have chapters 4 through 6, where Paul's going to unpack how we ought to walk, how we ought to live in light of these truths. 
And the key indication here is that we don't walk for the blessing of God. We walk from the blessing of God. We're not earning our way for something. We don't obey so that we will be accepted by God. But as Tim Keller points out, we are accepted. We are loved. Therefore, we walk. Therefore, we obey. That, that order is really important. So Paul is starting this section of Scripture by saying, I, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which with, with which you have been called. So we see this. Everybody with me up here? You guys good? Chapter 4, verse 1 signifies this shift. It's now all about walking worthy of what's been true about us. And we're going to see this in the next few weeks. Every section is kind of a different section around how, in light of the gospel, we should walk. Now, when we get to this passage, we just read six whole verses. And these six verses are enough for a whole morning Bible study to focus on this idea of how we should walk as the church in unity. All right? So if you'd like to take notes, here's what Paul is leading us to think about and to pursue together. As we're walking out of our identities in Christ, I'm not trying to walk into something, but we're walking out of the gospel, we want to walk in unity. Unity in Christ Jesus. Now, that order that I just described of indicatives and imperatives, truths followed by obedience and action, it makes probably most clear sense with this concept in the book of Ephesians. Um, Paul has been writing to this church, chapters 1 through 3, about the unity that they absolutely and finally have now through the gospel. Uh, this church at Ephesus was, um, was made up of uh, a, a big division in the community of Jew and Gentile. And that division was, an, uh, it culturally, it brought hostility between those people groups to the extent that there wasn't unity. There, there was great disunity. And this was just the previous uh, few chapters. This was Ephesians 2. We studied this. Paul has described how the gospel has brought unity between not just us and God, but with one another. He says, For God is our peace. Jesus himself is our peace between one another. He has made us both one, and he's broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, which would have created a separation between Jew and Gentile, so as to create in himself through the gospel, here's the church, one new man from the two. Notice this thus making peace, that he might reconcile them, all mankind, both to God, in one body, through the cross, thereby putting death to the enmity. When you read the book of Revelation, you see the vision of God's people around the throne, glorifying and worshiping Jesus, declaring his holiness, praising him for who he is. You see this in action. You see a multi-ethnic you see a diverse community that, that is no longer, listen closely, the church, this is what we're to represent, we're no longer defined by the hostile differences that divide us. That culture would exaggerate, right? That our flesh would even tend to lean into sometimes because we prefer what's familiar. But through the gospel of Jesus, we're not just reconciled to God, we're also reconciled to one another We've become one. Isn't this awesome? This is what our culture is actually longing for, but it's only Jesus that provides it truly. It's only in the church of Jesus that we should be able to model and that people will really be able to find true unity that's not superficial. But listen, this is what's beautiful, but it celebrates our differences. It doesn't say check your differences at the door, okay? It's not about uniformity. 
It's about substantial unity in and through Jesus. Now, listen, when you get this reality that Paul has just been like hammering into this church, this, this was a church community that was ripe for division. It was like, a, you know, according to the flesh, it had all the right ingredients for a divided people. And Paul's like, but through the gospel, you're united and you're one. Now, now do you get the idea? Therefore, right? We're following this train of thought. You are one through Christ. Therefore, Paul says, I'm calling you now in light of the fact that you are one. Paul isn't saying be peacemakers with one another. He's like, no, Jesus is the peacemaker. He's fixed the division issue. But we're called to walk in unity. He says this in verse 3. We're called to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're called to walk, listen closely, walk in the unity that Jesus has established in his church. And I want to point out that the context of this is unity within the local church, okay? There is another conversation about all the different kinds of churches in a community, in the world. I've heard uh, many deconstructing followers of Jesus or even... um, Um, non-Christians struggle with faith in Jesus, struggle with Christianity because of all the different denominations and divisions. That's another conversation that I don't have time for in my second sermon this morning, okay? Um, The context of this is Paul's writing to a local fellowship. So we're we're gonna follow what Paul is saying. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. It's like he was writing to Solus Church, our community, a covenant people. And he's calling these people to function in unity. Can I point out a few important facts about unity within the local church? Again, not uniformity, not uh, an absence of disagreement. We're going to talk about this, but substantial unity in Jesus. This is one of the key things that Jesus prayed for. In John 17, as Jesus was going to the cross, and it's a beautiful passage, this chapter in John 17, where Jesus is depicted as this high priest, and he's mediating This is what intercessory prayer looks like. You stand in the gap between someone and God and you bring their request to him. And Jesus is there and he's talking to his father. He's praying for his disciples. And then, I don't know if you know this, but like it's recorded in the Bible that Jesus prays for you. Now, not you by name. That would be really cool. But that, I mean, not like literally, maybe your name's in the Bible too, but like it probably didn't happen. So here, but this is cool. In John 17, he prays for all of us who will believe in him through the word of the disciples. That's the church of the 21st century. That word has spread from the first century, um, not just through time, but across continents to where we are those who believe on Jesus through the word of the gospel. He prays for us that we would be one. He's talking to the Father, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Here's his prayer for Solus Church, that they would be one in us. Notice this, that the world may believe that you sent me. Not only does Jesus pray for the unity of his church, but he prays with the conviction that that unity matters. Like, like it matters for the world's looking on at our, at our church. It matters for the, for the purpose of the kingdom. Jesus says, I pray that they would be one, notice again, so that the world, this would be the condition through which the world would look on and they would come to believe in Jesus. This is remarkable. Jesus, I think, had a twofold understanding here about unity in a church, unity among his people. One, Jesus understood, as we all would, the power, man, the kingdom power that comes with a unified people. 
I'm just telling you, the kingdom... By the way, have you ever seen churches lose power because of division? Have you seen this? Have you seen how we can stunt the power of the gospel? How we can limit the advancement of the kingdom because we get spun off into stupid, in the Greek, stupidios, secondary disagreements, or whatever it may be, preferential differences? Jesus knows the power of a unified people. Jesus knows the, the amazing work that can be done among a people who have a unified goal, have a unified motive, that are in it to win it for the glory of God. Amen? There's something to this. Now, beyond that, Jesus also knew the witness that unity was to the world. He knew. He praised this for the church. He's like, I pray for soulless church that they would be one, not just because of what I can accomplish through a family unit, but also because of what a witness that is to the watching world. They look on at that, and they see all of our differences, yet they see us functioning as family, and they're like, what is up with that? What is that? We say his name's Jesus, and he's united us. So, so Jesus prays for this. Jesus prays for our unity. I want to say this. The enemy knows that there's power in unity. The enemy we have a real spiritual foe and enemy, and he knows that there's power in a unified church. So what does he seek to do? Well, if he can't attack from without, he'll always come from within. This is the theme of the book of Acts. This is the theme of church history. Okay? I've only been pastoring a church for five years, but I'll say that theme is still unfortunately alive today. Okay? He, he knows the power in this, so he seeks to divide. He seeks to divide God's people he knows the potential power, and he knows the, also, let me say this, the destructive power of division. And so he's often at work to divide God's people, to divide a church. Uh, and this is why, let me say this, that God, this is really important, God takes the unity of his people very seriously. Very seriously. This is Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. This is a literary device to, de to describe the, first of all, the, um, when it goes from six to seven, it, it's, it's a beautiful poetic scheme here to describe the expanding nature of what's, of what's being described, but also the seventh thing ties it all together. These are things that, God, this is interesting. Like, did you know God hates some stuff? He's like, I ain't about, this is, these are God's peeves, okay? He's like, a proud look. I mean, who doesn't hate that, by the way? I've never heard someone who's like, I just love arrogance in the face. It's one of my favorite things. Okay. But God hate, he, he hates this. A lying tongue. Because he's holy. He hates, and, he, and he's loving. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates a heart that devises weak, wicked plans. He hates feet that are swift in running to evil. He hates... Actually, it's an abomination to him, a false witness who speaks lies. And then the seventh thing, and he hates one who sows discord among the brethren. Do you see this? Do you see how severe this is? This isn't like, oh, God's kind of not into disunity. It's like, no, abomination's like a big word we should pay attention to. He hates this. Now, this is why, let me say this too, in the New Testament, man, um, there are some really serious charges that are, that are given to pastors of churches in light of these truths. I, I think of, a, there's a passage in the book of Titus. Paul's writing to a young leader who's pastoring a church, and, and Paul tells this leader this. Look at, look at the posture towards division in the church in Titus 3. 
Paul's like, this, this needs to be your strategy with dealing with division in the church. This is how important unity is and how destructive division can be. Paul says, reject a divisive man. I love that he says, after the first and second admonition. He's like, you could even reject him after the first, okay? But if you're going to give him a second, max two admonitions. But notice this, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. This is like, like if we're going to be a biblical church, if I want to be a biblical pastor, this is one of the jobs that I've been given in caring for the sheep. It's to make sure that there's no wolves among the sheep that have a self-condemned, sinful motive in the church. This will destroy the work of God. This is one of the hardest things about pastoring a church is having to be on guard for really stupid, ugly stuff. Uh, notice the language there that a divisive person is warped. Do you see that language? The idea there, it's speaking of construction and it's speaking of like those, those two by fours on the rack at Home Depot that you're like, why is this even out? Who's gonna buy this thing? This thing should become a bow and arrow. That's what it should become. You ever done, you look at the wood, you line it up and because you know it's just gonna make building nearly impossible. If the board is warped, everything else is going to be a result of that. You just, Paul's like, you got to be gracious. We want to, we want to be discerning. It requires a certain um, discernment of the Holy Spirit, not to jump or make a snap judgment about someone. But do we see the encouragement here? Like division's a big deal. Jesus prays for the unity of his church. God says he hates a spirit of sowing discord among the brethren. Pastors are charged to reject divisiveness in the church because it's like warped wood trying to build a house. This is a serious matter. It, listen, it's no wonder it's one of the themes of Paul's writing. Like this is one of his themes, being like-minded. Not discord, but being of one accord being unified. And we see it here in Ephesians 4. What, what I want you to notice here in Ephesians 4, these verses we read, as we go through these six verses now, I want you to notice what Paul is saying about unity. Um, think about this in light of who he's saying it to. The book of Ephesians is not written to a pastor. It's written to a community of faith. I want you to notice that. That Paul, in leading the church at Ephesus into unity, he puts the goal of unity and the work of unity, listen, upon the people. Do we see this? Uh, unity, we could think of it this way. You should jot this down. This is really important. Unity is a collective effort. At the end of the day, a church will really only be as, as united or divided as the collective efforts of its people. So this is what kind of makes it feel like we have the wind of the Spirit on our back, so we, we're confident, but this is what makes this often a difficult journey. It takes all of us to be unified, yet it could take just one of us to divide. Or just one little unchecked spirit in the church, one little unhealthy way of dealing with conflict, one, one little little slip of gossip, one, one little tendency of slander, one, one little snap judgment about that person. Do you see this? Like, this is the job of, of the whole. In Ephesians 4, Paul calling this church to unity, he's putting it on the people of God. He's like, this is going to be a collective outcome or nothing at all. Now, you know, 
leading the church to be a unified church wasn't like one of the things that like I, I, need, I thought like this is what you got to really focus on when you start a church. It was just like, well, you reach people and you make disciples to the glory of God. And it's fun. That's what I mostly thought. And it is fun. It is fun. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Okay. <laughs> but more and more, can I just say, like not even because division, but like more and more as I see our divided culture and the tendency for division to creep into the church, I'm just telling you, this might be one of the most important pursuits we can have right now in our five-year, at our five-year point as a community. Like, are we going to be a unified church for the next five to 10 to 20 years? That's the question. And fighting for this really matters. And, and here's the good news. We have God's word and we have God's spirit and we have the gospel. Amen? Okay. So here's what, what God's word gives us. Write these four things down. In this passage, as we're called to be a unified people, as Paul says to the church, like this is a collective effort. Paul gives what we'll say like four collective keys. Four things that we must all collectively adopt, adopt if we want to be a unified people. There's a certain collective posture we got to have to one another. There's a collective patience. Someone say amen, a collective patience that we're going to need with each other. There's a collective purpose that we've got to have, that we've got to settle on. And there's a collective perspective that's aligned with what God sees that we've got to land on. Let's look at these. Let's look first at what Paul says. He gives us these collective keys to unity. First is a collective posture. It's a posture that we're to have towards one another. And we see that posture in the first part of Ephesians 4, verse 2. He says that if we're going to be a unified people, we must navigate our relationships, notice this, with all lowliness and gentleness. Those two words. If we're going to be unified, we must be unified in lowliness and through gentleness. This is the posture we're to have to one another. These two words, lowliness and gentleness, are each words to describe um, who you are. There's a reality of this with you and me. There's a reality of how lowly or how highly Andrew is and a reality of how gentle or prideful Andrew is, and same with you. And the question of, of this idea of lowly and gentle is a matter of, listen closely, who you are in relationship to other people, how you see yourself in relationship to other people, and how you function in relationship to other people. And the spirit of Jesus described here is we're to approach one another with a spirit of lowliness. This is a mindset that thinks about you more than me. And, and it's also a posture of gentleness or humility. These are really two words to describe the same thing, and that's humility. Humility. I mean, I don't need to preach too much at you or to you uh, to convince you that oftentimes the greatest cause of disunity and division in the church and in life is pride. <laughs> I've never met two prideful people that are loving life together. Uh, nor have I met like two genuinely humble, repentant, low-minded people that, are, that have an impossibility to work things out. I mean, in all of my marriage counseling and leading and life and friendship uh, mediation, oftentimes the biggest issue is what is at the root of all sins. It's the issue of pride, my tendency, your and my tendency to self-exalt, to think highly of myself. And this is where we really get into trouble, to place myself at a higher position than you. And this is where disunity will spill from this. And I want you to notice too how like lowliness and gentleness, 
Um, they're all throughout the scripture. They go together. So think, think of the contrast. So if you're lowly, you have a humble posture, you're going to be kind and gracious and gentle towards people. But if you're like self-exalted and you're better than, you're more holy, you're more smart, you're more wise, you're more fill in the blank, you're more godly, you're better, your, your default is going to be not gentleness, but harshness, criticalness, a lack of graciousness. This posture is prevalent in our culture everywhere you go. And so a, a, a prideful posture produces a, a fleshly response. Notice what we're called to. We're called to, listen, we're called to a posture that only the gospel of Jesus can produce in us. Only the gospel of Jesus can produce this posture. You see, apart from Jesus, all we have is comparison. That's all we have. And, and that's what we're stuck in. Self-identifying based upon where I'm at compared to where, you at, where you're at, right? Which doesn't lead to a lowly place. Even if there's like a majority of things that you're better at than me, I, you ever notice this? I'll always find the one thing I do better than you. And I'll, I'll look down on you for that, right? Well, oh, I don't sin that way. You sin that way? I mean, I sin this way, but it's not that way, you know? Thank God I don't sin that way, you know? And, and that's, that's the, the thing we get stuck in, comparison. Understanding who we are in comparison to one another. You see, what the gospel does is you see Jesus comes to earth and he comes to save all mankind, all sinners. And before the cross, there's not one of us, listen, who are, who are in more need of the gospel than the other. And there's nobody in here who's like less in need of the saving work of Jesus than the other. We come to the cross equally in need. It's level ground, isn't it? And we see ourselves as, as fallen short. When we compare ourselves to God, everything changes. We become low. We see who I, who I am compared to him. And then I gain a true identity through the gospel. Isn't this great? I don't have to fight to be someone. I can just be who I'm not before him and let his a saving work of grace rescue me. I don't have to try to earn my way to him. I can just be low before him. You just, that's how you get into heaven. You just bow low before Jesus. There's no, there's no um, you know, trying to get over the wall. And then when I, I come low before him, he gives me, let me tell you, Jesus gives you a confidence of identity greater than anything you can work for. And what it does is, listen, it frees you up to be the servant of all. Isn't that great? It free, you don't have to be right all the time. It's, it's, it can be exhausting when you have to be, but it's so liberating when you don't. And you're just like, I'm just here to serve like Jesus did. This is what the gospel produces. Paul unpacks this in Philippians 2, doesn't he? he goes, Paul goes in, okay, in Philippians 2. He says, therefore, in the church, if there's any consolation, comfort, if there's any comfort of love, there's fellowship of the Spirit, if there's affection and mercy, he says to the church, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. How does that happen? By letting nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul is, is giving this as an exhortation to the church, but notice the pathway to get there. How do we end up here? Who shows us how to have that humble and low mindset? He goes, it's Jesus. This is Jesus. 
This is what the gospel shows us, that Jesus had a mindset that even though he was in the form of God, if anyone was high and lifted up, it was Jesus. And even Jesus took his own position and he left it. He made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant. Jesus was high and lifted up and he went low. He went low to save you and I, to come into the form of a man, to, to, to beyond that, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This humble position is the only posture we can have as those that have been saved by the grace of Jesus. It's the only posture we can have. In fact, um, does that gentle and lowly thing kind of ring a bell to you, by the way? Okay, Paul's talking about Jesus has this mindset, but Jesus said this is, he said it about himself. Here's, here's Jesus' invitation to discipleship. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I think the message translation says, all you who are burnt out on religion. I like that. And he goes, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And here's a key phrase here. Learn from me. Take my way upon you. Here's the way of Jesus. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is where we find rest for our souls when we find out who Jesus really is. Um, a couple years ago, maybe, no, not a couple years ago, a year ago, not even actually, last summer we did a book club together as a church uh, for the summer through Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly which is a book that takes a deep dive into what Charles Spurgeon said is the most um, descriptive and detailed passage in, the, in all of the Bible uh, um, as it pertains to Jesus' heart. This is like the one place where Jesus says, this is, if you really want to know what my heart is, it's gentle and lowly. It's not harsh and demanding. It's not burdensome upon you. That's what religion does. So Jesus says, here's Christianity. We come before this, this Savior whose heart posture is, is gentle towards sinners and sufferers. It, it, it brings us near. When we come to Jesus and we confess our sin, he doesn't go, I just can't believe you. We come to Jesus, we say, Lord, this is what I've done this week. He goes, he goes I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was there. Come to me. Find rest for your soul. Find rest for your, in, in the midst of your suffering. Find rest in the midst of your sinfulness. And then he says, take this yoke and learn from me. Live the same way. This is what the gospel produces. It's a posture. The second thing it produces is not just a posture towards one another, but also produces a certain patience. And, and these first two things are two things that are produced in our lives as fruit when we abide in relationship with God. They're not works that we, that we force out of our lives, but, but it's fruit that's birthed out of abiding in Jesus, walking with him, receiving who he is. He's gentle and lowly towards me. I see that through the gospel where he saved me. So I can be gentle and lowly towards others. I can take on that same mindset. I'm going to learn his way. Same thing is true of patience. Notice what Paul says about patience. That the second part of that verse, in verse Let's see, verse 2. He says, with long-suffering, with long-suffering towards one another, bearing with one another in love. These are some helpful, descriptive big words to describe what patience looks like. 
Now, one of the most frustrating things with our humanity <laughs> as followers of Jesus is that this is really hard, and I, I, I apologize that this is true of your life today, okay? I don't know why I apologize, because I, I guess I, I feel the struggle of being a human. Um, it seems like in the Bible, like all the stories hmm, and all the verses, <laughs> that God is often preoccupied and focused on developing our patience, our ability to deal with resistance and difficulty. I love James 1. Don't you love that verse? Count it all joy when stuff gets thrown at you in life, right? When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing patience. It's like, all right, I'll get excited about being more patient. Like, and this is what God would have us do. We often want, you know, our biggest priority with God is like, God, we want you to fix this, solve this, change them. And he's like, that, that's great and all, but my biggest priority is to change you. My biggest priority is your patience, developing you to reflect my character. Now, it's one thing for God to develop our patience with life. But here in Ephesians 4, Paul's talking about a whole other kind of patience. He's talking about a patience with people. I don't just mean like people. I mean like you know their name, people, okay? Um, I mean, don't look directly next to them at your husband. Like, I know they're... He's talking about a kind of patience that's willing to endure the shortcomings of people. He says that patience looks like long-suffering. It looks like bearing with one another. What an interesting description of patience. Long-suffering. Um, this, this is... Um, this is absent from the cultural moment that we're in, whether it's on social media or TV or Thanksgiving dinner. I, I mean, everywhere, everywhere we go today, we have the opposite of long-suffering, right? This is foreign to us as a culture. We have short-suffering. We say things like, I've got a short fuse. I don't suffer long. I suffer short. I'm a quick sufferer. I don't put up with garbage. That's like a, that's like a character trait these days. It's like, it's like a vibe, all right? I don't put up with stuff. It's like, oh, you're impatient. Okay, cool. <laughs> short-tempered. We have short tolerance with any deviation from expectation. We're, we're often quick, not slow to anger, but we're often quick to dismiss, quick to assume, quick to conclude. And Paul's writing to Christians that are to be a light in a dark culture, and he says, be slow. <laughs> Suffer long. Be, be patient. Now, uh, this is important to notice that this is what, what Paul calls love. This is, this is what true love looks like. Um, it's called agape love. It's not a feeling. It's a fruit of the Spirit that's produced. Listen, when we experience this love, when we experience the love of God, check us out, we behold the love of God and we become loving people. You become whatever you behold. Have you noticed that to be true, by the way? In a negative sense? Man. How many of us have become more patient people over the past three years? You go, me? I've become, maybe you have. That's good. I, I was raising my hand sarcastically, and so good to see you. I am humble and lowly before you. Okay. Well, how many of you guys think our culture has become more patient over the past few years? Okay, good. good. And I mean that genuinely. I, I, when I say we, I mean like us as a culture. 
And, and it's like the more you behold it, the more we become it. It just becomes the air we breathe, the hostility all around us. And every day the goalpost is moving, right? So you can never actually, even if you get right, you can't stay right. I thought I was on the right. No, you're wrong now. Okay, how do I stay right? It's just like such a difficult time. And this is where the love of God shows up. I love 1 Corinthians 13. Well, I love it in theory. It says this, love, the love of God suffers long and it's kind. I love verse seven. It doesn't, notice this, it bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It's not quick to assume, but it believes the best. It doesn't hope for downfall. It hopes for restoration. It's a patient kind of love. And this is the only, the only way we can experience this kind of love personally or, or display it is if we encounter it from God himself. This is one of the ways that God describes himself. Let's just receive this good news this morning. In Exodus 34, God's people uh, represented here by Moses on the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. The question is, what is God like? We, the Israelites are like, we know what we're like. We're fickle, we're unfaithful, we constantly want to go back to Egypt. We are, as a people, we're, we're tough to bear with. They're like any, any of us. And, and so the Lord passes before Moses and he tells Moses, here's who I am. In light of who you are, here's what you can know, that I am the Lord, the Lord God. I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Like, Aren't you thankful today that God doesn't have a posture of snap judgment toward you? Aren't you glad? Man, I'd be gone a long time ago. Lightning bolt, you know? He's long-suffering. Look at Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion. This is, I'm just living in this today. God is slow to anger. This is what he's like. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Listen, we're, we're never gonna become that if we don't ever behold this. If we don't come before God and say, God, here I am as a sinner. Here, here I am as someone who deviates from the plan. God, I need to recognize that I am probably the most frustrating person in my life. And yet you're not frustrated with me. You're slow to anger. There's so much room. There's so much grace in you. God, may that grace flow out of me. Like, is there a greater way for us as Christians to be a light in the, in the culture we're in right now than just to be slower to react? Imagine what that would do in your workplace when someone comes in, if you're in the service industry, and they, boom, they throw that thing on the counter. Bah, 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 you're just like, you just think, slow down. Slow. Speed limit. It's amazing how we can reflect Christ. Look at these last two. We'll close out here. There's a united purpose. We're almost done. So there's a posture of lowliness and humility. If we're going to be unified, we've got to have that posture. Division will happen once we keep our pride alive. We've got to kill the pride, be clothed in humility. There's a certain patience we need that only comes when you encounter it yourself from the love of God. There's a certain purpose that's required, like um, a purpose, meaning uh, unity won't happen on accident. It has to, and it will only happen on purpose. And here's what, what Paul says. He says, endeavor, it's a great word, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So notice that, that we don't make the unity of the Spirit. And notice, too, it's not just like fleshly uniformity. It's unity of the Spirit. It's being, it's being in, in unity with what the Holy Spirit's doing in the church. 
Don't take this as, as don't have disagreements and don't speak hard truth. And, and, and you know, this doesn't mean like don't ever disturb the peace of the, of the people. Like don't ever confront anything. No, that's not the idea. It's the unity of the spirit. Okay? But notice that we, we don't make it. We're called to keep it. Jesus is the peacemaker. He's the great peacemaker who's made peace through us. But we're called to endeavor to keep it. We're called to, in the, in the, the, the work of the, in the fruit of the Spirit, notice the word there again, endeavoring. Endeavoring. It's an endeavor. Unity is not an overnight outcome. It's a long-term endeavor. If you've been married before, you know this. Marriage is an endeavor, okay? It's a venture. It's a journey. It's a process that requires purpose, that requires effort. Now, how do we purpose to keep the unity of the Spirit? Now, I believe that one of the most um, practical ways that if for the next five to ten years as we focus as a church, if we're like, we're going to purpose to be unified, keeping unity is, is a lot more about what we purposely keep out, more than just what we need to invest in. That's true. We do need to invest in the right kind of love, the right kind of posture, the right kind of patience. But Peter unpacks this in 1 Peter 1, and he's, he's calling this church to, to unity. He's like, hey, church, um, you've purified your souls in obeying the truth in sincere love, in sincere love of the brethren. He's like, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That's a great display of a unified church. Just loving one another, not hypocritically, but fervently with a pure heart. And then he says in chapter 2, how that's going to happen. How do I keep unity in my life? And how do we keep unity collectively in solace? We've got to lay aside, notice this, five unity killers. This will poison the unity of a church. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Peter writes and says, be unified Keep the unity of the Spirit. How? Well, we've got to keep out the playbook of the enemy, the little seeds that he'll sow of division through malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. What are these things? Malice, um, it, the word literally means like maliciousness. You know that word? The, the idea is there is a spirit of, it's a wicked and evil spirit of harmful intent. In a church? Never. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a wicked and malicious one in the world. And, and later in chapter 4, Paul would say, don't give place to him in the church. And it's amazing the kind of malicious tendencies we can all have, even if it's just in our hearts. And don't look at me like you've never had a malicious thought in your life, okay? Don't, and let's not act like this isn't our natural first response. And Christ is sanctifying our hearts, and we glorify him for that. But we've got to guard against harmful intent. This tendency when someone is a certain way to want to bring harm. And whatever that looks like with my words or my actions. Deceit is crafty dishonesty. It's a way that we could cause d division in the churches. Like the, the word there is literally, it means a decoy, like for hunting. That's the idea. It, it's something that appears one way, but it's deceitful. Another word for it is trickery, where, where we actually go behind each other's backs. That's the idea. What about hypocrisy? The idea here, and these are just words to kind of describe what these words mean, judgmental criticism, that'll kill division. Because, you know, 
I'd rather be like a naturally divided church of sinners struggling to be united than a church of unified hypocrites. That just, hey, good to see you. God bless you. How's your family? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> hypocrisy. And, and the idea here of hypocrisy is that you point the finger, but as Jesus said, you have a, you know, you, you have a plank coming out of your own eye. And you, take, you occupy the seat of judgment, but when you're in the seat of judgment, you're no longer on the stand as guilty they are, and you're up here, and you draw attention away from yourself and all of your brokenness. And I've just, like, I've just found this to be, to be true. Have you noticed, have you noticed that uh, the most hypercritical are often the most hypocritical? The most like, quick to judge, it's like, usually if, if someone's hypercritical, it's like, what's going on in your personal life that nobody else knows about? seems like you're diverting attention. This will kill unity in a church. Envy, spiteful jealousy will kill, uh, kill unity. Evil speaking, like this is, gets really practical here. Some translations say slander. How you speak about someone when they're not in the room. Come on, the one sin we all excuse. Well, you know, I would, but if they were here, I would say it like, I would say it like this. I would, t- I would say it. Well, then call them right now and say it. Well, I'm going to pray about it if I should do that. So, yeah, you should probably should. Slander is when you, you have no intent to build someone up with your words. You have more of an intent to destroy them with, their words, with your words, even if you're deceived into thinking you're helping them when they're not around. So you somehow think that talking about their problems is going to help them. Really, you, you're just falsely deceived into thinking it's going to help you feel better about yourself. But there's a, like, can I say this too? Like, um, Brittany and I have talked about this a lot, especially when, when we first had our, um, our first kid, like, it's really easy to gossip in the home and talk and call it honest conversation. And so we found this like, how we speak about people who aren't around in front of our kids is discipling them more than whatever we could teach them. Do you hear that? It's true. And there's just a tendency to be so loose with the tongue. To so, and you know what we're doing? We're excusing sin. And it's just sin. And, and this is what the enemy would want us to do, to use our words to tear down rather than to build people up the way God does. And, and also, most of the time, I'm just going to keep going. Also, most of the time, most of the time, like, we don't even have a relationship with half the people we're complaining about. Like, if you have an in, take the in and use your words and truth to help. But let's move on and we'll close the sermon, okay? <laughs> Lastly, I invite uh, Jimmy to come out to, cl- to transition us in this last one of perspective. So unity in the church, it's going to be a collective posture, a collective patience. There's got to be a collective purpose where we're going to keep certain things out of our lives and out of the church. We're going to guard against these, these poisons of, of unity. And then lastly, I mean, what really holds us together is at the end of the day, unity is about agreeing with God. <laughs> unity is just about agreeing with God about that person who's different than you. It's a perspective. Most of the time, our division is disagreement with God. We, we don't agree with him about that person who's different. So Paul says, let's get it straight. In the church, there is, there's not two bodies. There's one body in a local church. You know, in Solus, there's not two bodies of worship philosophy. 
two bodies of worship preference. There's one body. There's one Holy Spirit who has saved us, sanctified us, baptized us, and revived us. There's one Holy Spirit in us. There's one hope of our calling. There's one Lord. Thank God there's one Lord over the church, and it's none of us. Amen? It's Jesus. There's one faith. There's one baptism. Notice this. There's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul brings us back to a fundamental perspective that is essential to unity being in the church. And the idea is that though there are differences, and, the, and, and, and don't hear Paul saying what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that there shouldn't ever be some kind of division over doctrinal difference. We've talked about this in the past and how to navigate those differences. And, and there is an extent to which distance is helpful and it's biblical, okay? But Paul's talking about within an orthodox church, where, where the main things and the central things are centered around. Our unity in Christ is what we need to lean into. That's what we've got to lean into. That, that's that's, tr- that's going to be what's true about us for all of eternity. So let's not take these secondary lesser things, cultural differences, philosophical differences. Here's the big one, personality differences. <laughs> Did you notice that the church is not one personality, one philosophy? There's one Lord, and he, and he invites us to come into this big, beautiful, messy family together and to lean together upon our commonality, to find center ground around what matters most, to unite and divide around Jesus, around Jesus, around who he is and what he's done in your life. Can I just tell you that there is community for you. On the other side of this oneness, there's community for you on the other side of, of your faith to say, Jesus, I am a part of your church. And my tendency is to back away and be distant and sort of separate myself. But I recognize through the gospel, I'm, I'm a part of this one family and I need to lean into that. I want to lean into the work that you're doing. And so God, continue to do that in my life. That's a great prayer to pray.